All right, we are on page nine, and uh, I take it there are some needy people. Are you needing this? Oh, it looks like you have yours. It feels good to have finally finished the Old Testament after being on it almost all year. <laughs> Uh, I was hoping to finish the entire Bible by the end of this year, but you can't, if you just skim over the surface, you miss so many things. So, Matthew 121. Uh, I think we probably know that one by memory. Anybody here want to venture to speak from memory? I uh, was of the generation where we were supposed to memorize our memory verses every week. That was for the busy bee in the first grade, you know, right? It wasn't just that. It was kind of just, it was the law and the church, and I was the only one who ever did. Well, not the only one. There were there were a few of us in Sabbath school class. The whole and we would we'd get up in church and recite the whole quarters, quarters memory verses. And then uh, there was um, a June vacation Bible school one year where they gave us huge numbers of texts, more than you ever get in a quarter. And we were supposed to memorize those. My brother had a sheaf that was for his age group, which was bigger than mine. And I had a sheaf for mine. They were pages and pages of texts. And we we went pacing back and forth. We had a long living room, dining room that we didn't use as a dining room. We just had a simple kitchen table. And we would go with that full length of that on a cloudy, rainy day, memorizing, memorizing, memorizing. And my brother and I were the only ones who got up at the end of Vacation Bible School and recited every single text. <laughs> and we were given a Bible for that. I was given a white Bible, and he was given a black Bible. King James Version, of course. That's all we used in those days. Uh, those were the days. But I'm, I'm grateful for that past, because now I have the storehouse in my head. So if nobody's willing to read it, I will recite it. You shall call his name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. I don't know that we've unpacked that verse fully as Christians. We kind of translate it, you shall name his name Jesus, because he will forgive his people their sins. But it's, you shall say, he will save his people from their sins. Now, the thing you need to know about the Greek word save, sozo, it means to also to heal. Mm-hmm. And you think about Jesus' ministry, this is kind of looking ahead here. He spent more time healing people than he did teaching them. Was that just an aside, just a attention getter? You know, like we talk about the, the health message being the right arm of the gospel. Uh, the way to get your foot in the door, the way to get to people's hearts. And once you've gotten them in your pocket, then you can tell them anything and they'll believe you, uh, which is how we've tended to use it. Or is there something more? And, and I'm not going to answer that question today. We'll unpack it as we move through uh, the Gospels. But this is a very important point to begin on, that Jesus came explicitly to save us from our sins. Not in our sins, but from our sins. And if, you, if, if, if we view sin as, as I have come to believe, that sin is abuse, don't we want to be saved from that? 
Don't we like? Don't we want to stop abusing ourselves and being abused by others? I, I, I really come to see sin in a totally different way than I was raised to believe that it was just breaking rules. Uh, sin is something so much more. Uh, it is. It is a whole trajectory. That's uh, actually a narrow view. It is. Uh, a condition from which we need to be saved from, healed from. It is a state of distrust. It is a mental illness, in a sense. Uh, and I'm not alone in saying that. Ellen White actually says that, that sin is a mental illness. Narcissism, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, that sin is is something that we get caught up in like you would a cycle of abuse where we are abused and so we abuse others and and we just carry that cycle out uh, in the way that we treat others. So uh, that's uh, the, this is to me is a very important place to begin. But let's move on since we have pages of the Gospels. If we have time, are we free to interject? Yes. You're, we read the scripture, so it says... Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And in Matthew 6, I'll turn there. Um, says if, one scripture says, If an eye be single, thy whole body shall be full. And one translation that the word single has is healthy. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body shall be full of light. And Hebrews 12, um, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, that's the one that I'll read. Um, it says, looking unto Jesus, the, the author and finisher of our faith. And it reminds me of a vision that Ellen White had. She saw it's titled The Narrow Path. I believe the book is Christian Teachings and Experience. And there's a group of people, and they're, they're traveling on a road, and initially they have, you know, a horse and buggy, you know, and then uh, eventually they're the path becomes more and more narrow, so they have to let go of the buggies, and they just have um, horses, and then it begins to get more narrow, so now they have just, they're just walking on the path, but it's so narrow that they have to um, even take their shoes off, and even their stockings, it says, and they're just walking on the very narrow path, and then after that, um, there was no more room for walking, so they just had these ropes hanging you know, and um, well, essentially, in that vision, you know, God was the rope that they were hanging on to. So um, it was really it was either God or or nothing. They had that all they had to hold on to was God. And there are many people who um, did not stay on the path. They couldn't endure the, or they chose not to endure the, the hardships. Um, you know, but. It didn't have to be that way for them. Yeah. But there was the group that uh, held on to the rope, and uh, it didn't go anywhere. The rope was there. And there was a, a white wall there with blood coming down the wall, which um, would represent you know, Christ's sacrifice, which is sufficient for anyone who chooses to accept it. Mm. Okay, I, I believe as she interpreted that vision that they, the record represented faith, trust. Trusting God, because God was holding that cord, and um, so 
we want to keep this in mind as we move uh, through the gospel. Uh, turn to chapter 3 of Matthew and 50, verse 15. And uh, mm-hmm. Tiffany, you want to read that? Sure. Just that verse. Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. Okay. The baptism of Jesus was necessary to fulfill all righteousness, and that is what Jesus came to do, is it not? What does it mean to fulfill all righteousness? Well, part of it is fulfilling prophecy. Right. There's one uh, New Testament scholar who points out, I think it's um, in the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, that the word fulfill in the Greek actually means to explain. Hmm. To explain all righteousness. So I, I think... Fill with meaning. Fill with meaning, exactly. And if you look at also a different nuance of that, it would be to to do, to do everything that's right. Yeah, fill with meaning, I think. Yeah. So I think those two meanings are, are present here. So what we're doing, I think what Matthew is doing is setting the stage for the actions of Jesus, for the words of Jesus, uh, and what they are about. So let's move on. I'm not sure we want to try to tackle the entire Sermon on the Mount uh, in terms of salvation, but I think we ought to at least do the Beatitudes. So let's go to Matthew 5. Gene, that starts hitting immediately at what we've been discussing or you've been sharing with us. It's so easy for us to go that punitive he had to fulfill this list, and, and that isn't what it's about. It's about and, and what Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount is expose the fact that 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 a list isn't enough, right? And that it's it's the high, standards are higher than that list, and and we can't possibly do it on our own. And so here's where we begin. Tara, would you start with verse three? Why don't you just read all the Beatitudes to us? They they go through um, verse twelve. Okay. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Okay, how many rules do you find in there? (laughs) (laughs) Normally translations have happiness. Is that a good translation? Yes, that's the best translation. Makaroi is happy. Let me explain the, the history of this. In the, in the Old Testament, there are two words for blessed. One means happy, and the other means happy or fortunate or, or blessed. Uh, the other means blessed, and that one is Baruch. And Baruch means blessed as in God will bless you and smile on you with favor if you do what is right. That's the kind of blessed you have in the blessings and the cursings of the covenant. 
the other term is used mostly in the Psalms. For blessed is the man who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, or sitteth in the way of sinners, or standeth in the no, standeth in the way of sinners and sitteth in the seat of the ungodly. You can tell I memorized the King James Version. That blessed is happy. It's Asher. Uh, the the name Asher in the tribe the tribe of Asher uh, is means fortunate or happy. Uh, or you could say blessed. Uh, it can mean blessed. Psalms Psalms one twenty eight one and two says blessed is everyone that feareth the Lord that walketh in his way. Thou shalt eat labor of thine hands, and happy shalt thou be. So if yeah, it, it, it's that. It, it probably uses them somewhat interchangeably, but uh, Jesus is very consistent in using Ashri, which Ashri doesn't refer to necessarily God doing it, pouring out blessings, but the intrinsic results of doing something. And so, so that's how the Psalms mostly uses it. And likewise, the way Matthew is structured is structured around the covenant. So Jesus starts with the blessings instead of with the law. Because he takes the covenant and turns it upside down. So he starts with the blessings. And then he winds up in Matthew 23 with the curses. And the curses are not the word, the normal word for curse. They are woes. Which again are intrinsic results. That's uh, what we understand is he turned a lot of things he'd start the other. He turned just about everything upside down. You know, Tom Blankot have a clear word and he, he uses happiness. Happiness comes from having right now. Yeah. yeah. I kinda like that. Yeah. It, it it captures really the sense of what Jesus is saying. I would take them I used to take them as individual. Some way in my mind, I didn't sort of pick out what I tried to be, but I took it out more as that some people are going to be merciful, some are going to be persecuted, you know, separate kind of groups of individuals. But actually, this we all have all these elements in our lives. I see this actually as a, I don't know how to put it, almost a step-by-step process of the Christian life. Because Jesus begins with the thing that we have to have in order to have the kingdom. And that is, blessed are the people who are spiritually needy. They feel that they recognize their need. There's a sequence, isn't there? There is a sequence. Mm -hmm. And uh, I used to, I I, I, uh, was a very self-sufficient, independent person from the time I was about four or five. And I had always, I always had a trouble with this feeling your need and all of that kind of thing. I, I, it felt very. Didn't like that. I didn't like the humility of it. <laughs> I'll be honest. <laughs> I didn't like the humility of it, and uh, I didn't understand it. It f- made me feel vulnerable and, vic- and able to be victimized. And I, I have, in the process of understanding that sin is abuse. I came to understand the importance of need. In fact, I remember even here at PUC teaching, I had a book uh, that I used by Lewis B. Smeads called uh, Mere Morality. And uh, it's on the Ten Commandments and, and morality. It's an ethics book. It's very biblical-based, very conservative. And he claimed that love is need-based. And I went, no, no, no. Well, we'd love because he first loved us, and, and I, I was I was really opposed to that. 
and then I began to analyze it. If we don't have a need for love, we're never going to be able to receive it. When your highest needs. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so what I've come to view is that need is foundational and that all, all God's creatures have it. We, we are created with it. And in need, in, in eternity where we aren't exposed to abuse and all of that, in eternity our need becomes translated into something else. And I haven't figured out what, exactly what that is because I haven't reached a perfect world yet. Um, but I would guess that need is more uh, healthy desire, a healthy um, a healthy response to what is present and what can be had, uh, as opposed to our needs and our desires are, are more closely related to lust, where we have a, a terrible deficit and vacuum and, and we try to fill it with things. Uh, and, and we're always trying to fill that need. In, in eternity, where we're in control of the self, uh, because we are loved sufficiently, we are, we are whole people, uh, it translates into something very different. I never thought about that, Jane. If, you know, we always look at need-based, and my end of the world, I deal with it. Everything is need-driven. And, uh, but if, say angels, it isn't really a need. They're just that way. They just, they're, yeah. they don't have, they just are loving. And, you know, all that stuff is just there. So it would yeah. be different than a need, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah, However, yeah. I would like to suggest that the angels never have had the kind of need we have. Yeah. And the, consequently, they never have had the experience of love on the level that we ha- can have. Yeah, Ellen White talks about that. Yeah. They, they, they've never experienced what we've experienced. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering if it's maybe, um, for those who are married, <laughs> Um, when you hopefully when you get married you give your heart totally I mean not in a vertical way but you give your heart to each other and out of that you can respond accordingly not out of fear not out of need not out of it's just a response that is wholehearted and I'm wondering if it's something similar yeah, I, I think a healthy marriage should have those qualities rather than being, I'm, I need you and I'm, I'm going to get out of you what I need. Yeah. Uh, which is ten, what we tend to do with marriage. Simultaneous. It's, it's more, uh, you have what I need and I have what you need and, and we, it, it's a mutuality rather than, uh, something a user, user kind of model. Yes, and I think if, if we can transcend that in any form here, it gives us maybe a glimpse of what will be. I, you know, I could be wrong, but... Um. Well, I think the best of marriage, uh, marriages do transcend and, and give us a taste, a foretaste of... There's Ornish um, in one of his studies. If, if, if that love or that... That sharedness you experience that increases your longevity 100%. <laughs> Resistance yeah. to disease. We were made for 
intimacy with God and others. We need that. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like babies and Freud, babies die if they don't have it. Right. They don't have the touch and the warmth. We're taking care of a German shepherd. One of my renters is gone for three weeks. And it's, it's so crazy in the morning. They, they, you know, even some of, some of his creatures, they have that need. He wants to be touched and like, you know. Just that, I have cats that won't eat until you pet them. The need is more important yeah. than the food. Yeah. And this particular cat doesn't need any food. He's... <laughs> he just needs the attention. In fact, if you gave him enough love, I have a feeling he would slim down. I have a couple of clients right now. They stopped by us. Maybe limit the food. Yeah. I don't know. It was in the yard. I have to leave it for them because they're outdoor. Yeah, they're just such a kick because they neither one have. One's deeply spiritual. The other was not spiritual at all. And they got together, and they're both spiritual. But they've never experienced tenderness and compassion and and warmth, and it is so fun to watch. And they just get a an awe. It's just you know, when I hug someone, when I hug my kids now, I can actually feel. It, it, the feeling did not follow the because of the damage and the abuse and the mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know how sin paralyzes and love heals. You know, opens that up. You know, it's fun uh, to see. Sin also uh, numbs. Yeah, numbs. Um. Okay, so um, so we start with this. This is where we start, and everybody's there. So there's there's nobody that can say I can't have the kingdom because I don't have any needs. <laughs> I mean, that's that's kind of ludicrous. So when Jesus starts out with where the kingdom is, and the kingdom for him is salvation. It's, it's all about the business of saving people from sin. Uh, where he starts that plan of salvation is our need. Now, back when I was in high school, uh, there was it was popular to do the um, st- what it was it the steps of spirit steps of steps of salvation. There was this a pamphlet that was popular. Oh, we all use that. Yeah, it was the, the chair thing. And the, yeah, one? yeah, and yeah, and I got I got annoyed with it because it began with with our need. It, it felt to me like we had to we had to do something. Four spiritual laws. The yeah, four spiritual laws. There you go. <laughs> yeah, and I I remember countering my my religion professor in uh, senior my senior year of high school. It happened to be Roger Dudley. Well, it Roger? <laughs> Poor man. <laughs> he, he was stuck with me that year. I was a bit cynical, unfortunately. But um, I, I countered that. The real first step for salvation was the one God began when he came to love us. And because I think sometimes you take a person who's a, a, if you're a victim of abuse and they're so shut down and, and afraid to be vulnerable, uh-huh. that when you attempt to, to love them, if they aren't too da- badly damaged, that can be the only thing that opens them up to their need. Uh-huh. Because then they feel safe. They can respond, I need that, I need that. And I, so I, I like to begin with that. Jesus doesn't, though, and I think the reason he doesn't is because they're not ready for that. He begins with something everybody can think about, 
we all have the need. So then the next step is happy are those who mourn. What is that about? Now this is, seems like an oxymoron. I don't know of anybody grieving who's happy. Well, I take it that it means that you're mourning your past life, your activities, your behaviors, and your waste of time, and your impact on other people that you come in contact with, so to speak, personally. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, that's where I have to go. Have you ever been happy mourning that? Any, anybody? I have. When God brings me to repentance, it's such a relief. And, and it, it is so, it, he does it so lovingly that I'm, I just find myself, ah, this is wonderful, and I'm happy. That's when I know God has been really working on my heart. Uh, actually, my version has, happy are people who grieve because they will be made glad. In other words, the happiness isn't immediate. It's not in the morning. It's after the morning, uh, once the morning has passed. Well, it's kind of like such a Christ for you. You have to recognize the sinfulness of sin or that just, you know, that it, it's not your friend, it's your enemy, and, mm-hmm. and it's hurt you, and you, mm-hmm. this is evil, and then, then you need. Yeah, yeah. Deliverance yeah. and healing. And sometimes we, the way Ellen White puts, expresses it in some places, um, we, we can only recognize sin for what it is when we recognize the truth about God for what he is. It's it's like a, I don't want to say it's a catch twenty two. It's it's like a positive circle where one gives the other to the other to the other, and it's it's hard to know where it begins. I think, I, I think that's true, Jane. It's kind of those that are forgiven most have gone to that deep mm-hmm. man. I've been forgiven. They love most. I mean, there's there, there's some correlation. Be you know. Well, I think that those who are forgiven most recognize the most the horrible nature of sin. Yeah. The they really, yeah. they really see it for what it is, uh, and, and and just that's why for me breaking rules it's not cut. It is not. It is not at all unpack the horrible things about sin. I have a friend who adopted two girls. Uh, she and her husband, and then her husband. Became went rigidly to the right um, and became abusive and finally dumped her and the girls and walked out of their lives. And the girls went through tra- terrible trauma. They went through trauma at birth um, and they all went through trauma losing their dad and their dad had been abusive to them so it was a mixed bag of loss. And um, one of the girls inherited from both parents rapid cycle bipolar and um, I, I remember one day talking to the mother who's a very dear friend of mine and she said um, she said Jean I don't understand why people are so in love with this world she said, it is a horrible place, and sin is a terrible thing. It's like she really grasped 
the nature, and she had been working toward grasping that for quite a few years. She had, she had uh, been to the Rocky Nancy and Ron Rocky seminars and had had gone through the LRI program um, and really had unpacked uh, what sin does in, in all of its ramifications. But it was like the experience was so horrible to her that it was like, no, there's there's got to be something better than this. And I think that those who really grasp that uh, level of sin and, and really uh, experience it, they have a sensitivity. You, I mean, a lot of us experience sin and we just shred it. We don't even realize we're being hurt. But those who have the sensitivity to recognize sin for what it is and, and to experience it are those who are going to love the most because they love they love the, the alternative so much more. And thankfully, or we can we can be thankful for the promise of the Holy Spirit, as many of those promises that are, because it's um, in Desire Pages, chapter thirty-one. She actually says that it's, it's the Holy Spirit that brings that helps an individual at the heart to to see to to understand the sinfulness of sin, you know, to, I, to convict somebody of of, of, a, of any sin, you know. So yeah. Um, I, I see the Holy Spirit as the God with us right now, the one who who has the capacity to to embrace us with His love uh, in a very real way. If if we can, if we are able to accept that and able to respond to it. Okay, let's um, move on. And then, happy are people who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness. Once once you've got, once you've unpacked the baggage and and left it behind and, and embraced. Uh, repentance you're hungry and thirsty for all the love and maybe that's maybe that's the term we're looking for the metaphor we're looking for to uh, talk about need the need now becomes transformed into a thirst that can't be quenched and yet it's quenched over and over again but we quench it only to want it more Um, that's a great metaphor yeah. You're thirsty, for, you know, and you're really thirsty. I mean, you just, I gotta have this. this is... Yeah, I can't have, I can't get enough. I can't get enough. And, and you meet people who are and their first love with God. Uh, they're always reading their Bible. They can't get enough of it. Something happens in the Christian life that we lose that, and I, you know, if we had the time, we'd we'd talk about it. My sense of things is that the world tries very hard to knock it out of us. And if we succumb to that pressure, then we start becoming jaded. And And Jean, I think some things that we've talked about that you're putting together, it's it's one of the sequences he always does. He describes how love works. Love me with all your heart, all your soul. Heart is always first. When I work with couples, that's what they do. I says, you know, relationships are real easy. You gotta keep the tenderness. Whatever it takes, you keep that every time you say you love that person. You keep that that heartness, you keep that that you know, that that tenderness of warmth toward that person. Like it's easy to lose that with God. Yeah. And then it just becomes a belief, it just becomes a practice. 
and, and not, it's easy not, not hungry to, and thirsty and, for his presence yeah, and, and his it's, touch and his And work. it's easy not to ever have it in the first place, yeah, which I think yeah. a lot of Adventists are in that yeah, situation. Yeah. They've inherited this religion, and, and they put it on like a, a loose-fitting garment, but it is... Never touch their hearts. Well, I'm so rule oriented instead of yeah. oriented. And rule oriented, you're not very trustful. No, it's not. Rules aren't love and warm and loving. I I wrote a very cynical poem when I was in high school because I, of what I saw in, in academies. You know how the rules were administered and everything. I I, uh, I said, uh, all the almighty rules, may they have eternal life. You know? <laughs> I, I view this as kind of an idolatry, yeah, it which really it has been. Okay, the moving on, uh, blessed, and here's the heart. Oh, wait a minute, I got ahead of myself. And happy are people who show mercy because they will receive mercy. Now, if we're hungry and thirsty for righteousness, it isn't the kind of hunger and thirst for righteousness. Well, I'm going to be right, and you're wrong, and, and I'm going to lord it over you. Uh, this is the kind of righteousness that leads us to mercy. And that's, that's internalizing the gift of the Spirit. Yeah. In the sequence, that's a whole new thought for me. I love this. this because what you, we just said, and you hear, if you show mercy, you're feel, you feel and know is. Right. Tenderness is right. right. It's becoming real. Yeah. And and it's an, uh, sometimes an unconscious process. Mm-hmm. It, it shows up. Show it. It, it is overwhelming. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and if once you show mercy, once you have that mercy of God, and you can't show something you don't have, and so as God has been merciful to us, and as He has treated us. I, I want, fortunately had wonderful parents who modeled that. My, I remember one time I, I, my, my mother had to go to Walla Walla uh, College to work on summer school classes. And so I was 12, and she instructed me how to chill, take care of the house. And I had been helping her with the housework for years, so it wasn't that big a step forward. But I had to do all the cooking and all the cleaning and and all the uh, laundry and, and everything. And so I did that for that summer. And I decided to iron the clothes one morning, and so I was busy trying to iron, and I couldn't... I, I started... The iron started sticking on one of Dad's shirts. And I thought, mm-hmm. now which way is hotter and which way is cooler? I need to turn the iron down. And, and I thought, well, well, it seems like wool would be cooler. <laughs> and... That shirt uh, sort of lost a patch that stuck to the iron. I mean, it was just one neat little patch. And I'm like, oh, no, I ruined that shirt. And so I remember running out across Laurelwood Academy campus trying to find him because he was working on the grounds in the summer. And I found him, and I Dad, Dad, I'm sorry I ruined your shirt. And he said, which one? I described it. Oh, that's no problem. That's an old shirt. <laughs> Forgiven. And, and my parents were like that, you know. Um, my earliest memory of a mistake was I, uh, uh, mom was trying to find someone to help her set the table for supper. And, and she get, and uh, I offered to do it even though I was only three and the table was above my head. And uh, she handed me the bowls one at a time and I was putting them on the table very carefully. And the fourth bowl, final one, I was thinking about how good I was doing, and it slipped from my fingers. Pride goes before a fall. 
and it broke on the floor. And I was just so scared. Oh, she's going to scold me. And she merely picked up the pieces and said, Jeannie, we all make mistakes, even big people. That's a huge gift you have. Yeah. And so it's, it's like that kind of love comes naturally. So once we have that mercy, the next step is pure hearts. Happy are the people who are pure hearts. I actually like the pure in heart better. Somehow that makes more pure sense. Thoughts pure thoughts and motives. Um, actually, in Mount of Blessing, uh, Ellen White makes the comment that is, it's beyond just the level of having pure thoughts and, and not lusting and, and all of those things. It is having, and I probably should look this up and not just try to remember it, um, it is like being authentic. She doesn't use that term. That term wasn't available in her day. But it's like having the real true form of, of godliness in the heart. In other words, uh, we're not hypocrites, we're not um, disingenuous, we're not double-minded. Uh, our motives are purified, our, our uh, desires are purified. And she really points it to the pure in heart are those who really have the full measure of love of God in their hearts. There's uh, one of my favorite except for Christ 34 how do you know you're in Jesus and then she has this whole sequence where that, that, you, that you have embodied and say, who has your warmest affections who has your deepest thoughts who do you love to talk about you, you're, just, you know, you're just immersed in this it isn't well I'm doing what is right but it's this, you sense and I think as we experientially, when all of a sudden it dawns on you, I'm not doing this because I have to. I'm doing this because I want to, because this is a spirit in, is in you, and that can leave you. Have you ever had that? All of a sudden, you no longer have tenderness and compassion. I remember it scared me to death. That's happened several yeah. times in my life. Yeah. Really, that isn't just a, that isn't a genetic thing. That's a gift of God each day. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. And, and we can lose that just in the busyness of life. Yeah. Trying, to, trying to keep up and, and trying to get everything done. Um, we get very mechanical, um, and that's when we can lose it. I thought you shared, she says, duty becomes a delight. Yeah, 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 she does that. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes the, the Christian walk seems like, or Satan wants us to, to view it as a, as a burden to the yoke. Yeah, yeah, then we've, we've missed it. Yeah, but it's not. And in regards to what we spoke about previously, even in the Psalms, it says, "They that sow in tears shall reap in joy." So the journey may not always be pleasant, but the end result is that God will wipe away all tears. And then, then the next level is happy are people who make peace, peacemakers, because they will be called God's children. Once we're filled with the love of God, our role in the world changes. It changes from being right and lording it over people to to seeking peace. What? Can you give us any insight on that? Because you know, that was so much of Jesus' talk. 
he gives it, you know, my peace I give you, peace make. What is that really in his context or the language? Does it give any clue what that is about? That's a huge experiential term, Doug. Is it? And I don't know that I can easily define it. Yes. I was I was going through a very difficult time in my life once. And I remember my my parents came up to visit me before they moved up here. And uh, my mom let me know, you know, you may feel like there's just nothing but darkness and turbulence around you, but she said, I feel around you the peace. And I, I, I thought about that, and I thought, you know, I do have that inside. I've been focusing too much on, on what I perceive is going on around me and not enough about what God is doing in me. Uh, and that peace... I think I think the best way to define that is the Hebrew way, shalom, is wholeness. It doesn't mean peace as in being well, maybe the Buddhist kind of peace where you just kind of mm-hmm. gel out, chill out, and you don't really feel anything. And that which is is really the Buddhist way is to try not to stop feeling. Um, that's not the peace in in Jewish in Jewish understanding. Shalom means wholeness completeness so even if you're sitting in prison and beaten and you can sing and pray yeah right you, you found it yeah so the peacemaker isn't trying to think of my language my English construct but the peacemaker isn't so much an active something in English where you're actually making peace it's actually the peacemaker within yourself well, that's where it starts, but I think Jesus is going beyond that to saying that we're to bring to other people the ability to make peace so that, in other words, we're not causing dissension. We're not causing friction. We're not causing tension. We're not making life harder for other people. We're other-centered, and we're in this world to create harmony wherever we can. Okay, so it's an active peacemaking. It is active peacemaking. Blessed are the peacemakers. But you can't do that unless you have it internally. I think These are good steps how to, yeah. how to get there. But I was wondering if so many of us have taken that to mean we just don't get involved, we don't create issues. If the pastor says something, we don't like them to say anything, or a neighbor. See, I didn't I think a lot of people are translating this to Peacemaker. Being, yeah. Rather than a, not a good concept of what you Well, I see peacemaking as doing. something I do sometimes in <clears throat> meetings. I won't say which ones. Where there has is friction and, and dissension. And, and uh, there was a time in my department years ago when there was considerable tension and friction. And I found myself almost operating like a mediator at times, trying to bring two people who were at each other to realize that they were more in agreement with each other than they were against each other. Uh, I, I would occasionally play that role. I think that's, that's the role of peacemaking. But I think it, I think it's bigger than that. I think it's really, if you take the word shalom again as wholeness, it is seeking to make people whole. In, in, that, in that Hebrew sense, shalom, that wholeness was on all levels, yes. physically, emotionally, spiritually, you are whole. You feel totally 
satisfied. They, they keep talking to them. Yeah. Nothing, nothing else can be That's That's from the intellectual Yeah. Yeah, actually, actually, according to, um, I can't think of his name, he wrote the book of Two Minds. He did a, a magnificent study using glasses that block one eye so that you can talk to the brain behind that eye. Mm. Um, and he, he claimed we were, uh, really have two brains, uh, and they, when they get out of sync with each other, that's when we have turmoil and, and all these psychological problems. And so he worked with uh, many, many patients uh, dealing with this, and he discovered that where the trauma center usually is is the left brain, the logical center, the intellectual center. It's not in the right brain. And and so... Um, you see that all the time working with people. I'm sure you do. They have this sort of emotional sense that they know it's not right, it's not working, it doesn't work for them, everything's been intellectually... And, and you see, they just don't connect the dots. See, unfortunately, we have taught, our whole society has taught left-brainedness to, to that the left brain is supposed to control everything and, and dominate everything, and, and so it can abuse us, is, is what it boils down to. One, there's, there's a, a book, Spiritual Intelligence, that has pushed beyond that. There's, you have the, uh, it, it talks about actually there are neurologists and, and therapists that behind, like you're talking about the behind, there's like, they actually have this 34 megahertz where this is a part of the brain that can integrate those things. And it says that's where spirituality, spirituality operates on that higher level than we, in therapy, we, we operate on cognition and affect. Too. And they said, no, 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 there's a whole other level. It's a spiritual one. See, I believe they can that. Take and, and they actually have, uh, at the University of California, they did research where actually they could look when you're doing the brain mapping, when you're talking about spiritual things or spiritually oriented, that part of the, the brain that does um, affect, that does um, aesthetics, does art. It's the same part of the brain that operates spirituality. It really was interesting. That it's well, a, now, it's isn't isn't the spirituality. spiritual part of the brain the, brain, the, the, the part of the brain that can experience and process love? Yeah, yeah, yeah it's the same. And it was so helpful. I, uh, one of your professors gave me that book years ago when I first came here. And it's helped me so much because if I can't, people won't open up to spirituality because they've been hurt or abused by it. Well, I can get into that part of the brain through aesthetics, or romance, romance the same part. It, it's it's all about that deep love connected. But I can op- start opening that part of the brain up so they can, might be open to those other dimensions. Because there's other things that are that operate in that same mm-hmm. same brainwave kind of. Which thing. means, <laughs> which means that our religion should be beautiful. Mm-hmm. It isn't just enough to be, you know, duty and and all of that. And it, it isn't just enough to have it be loving and kind. Uh, it needs to awaken our sense of beauty yeah. so that we will not tolerate anything that is not beautiful. Is that some of your religion. most spiritual moments? 
Well, I've only recently come to believe that I operate on the level of beauty, that I, I can't tolerate something that's not beautiful. <laughs> and, and it's only been... <laughs> Yeah. I remember I uh, quit talking, but I had a kind of eyebrow encounter. I'd never seen jellyfish up close. I went, first time I went to Marin Museum, I stand in front of the jellyfish display with the black mm -hmm. lights and they're all fluorescent and no heart, no circulatory system, and just this unbelievable. And in the sense that God made and or created on in the beauty of their movement and all that, we just go. You just had those kind of eyebrow encounters. I got myself in real trouble with jellyfish because uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was on a boat out at Fort Bragg uh, doing whale watching, and I was watching the jellyfish. Yeah. There were just swarms of them around that boat as we were moving forward, and I kept watching it, and, of course, the boat was going like this. And the next thing I knew, I was uh, down below deck trying to hold us together. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks to the jellyfish. <laughs> but I, I'm the kind of person that can stand in front of an aquarium and watch oh, for hours. Overwhelmed. Yeah. Well, let's, let's see if we can finish this section. Happy are those whose lives are harassed, my version has. I like that term for persecution. Uh, whose lives are harassed because they are righteous, because the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Uh, that when, when you're harassed, that, that's the hardest thing to be happy. But that's when we're supposed to be happiest. Happy are you when people insult you, harass you, speak all kinds of bad and false things about you. Does that make you happy? usually makes us really upset because of me. Be full of joy and be glad. My hunch is that if you were to read the Hebrew, and some, there are some scholars who think that Matthew originally wrote this gospel in Hebrew, and that it was translated into Greek. I don't know how true that is. But I, I, being an Old Testament person, I keep reading the Hebrew to mind. And, and there's a word in Hebrew for being exceedingly glad. It's literally to shriek for joy. Shriek for joy. Wow. It's gil, uh, is, is, the, is the Hebrew. You know, the gene, you know, as we've been watching this process with ISIS, you see these young people joining, you know, it's more than the need for survival or life, joining in cause or finding meaning or, and they'll, they'll die or be person, you know, huge risk for that. that. That is something that is, you know, I don't know if that's tapping into what, when you're, when you're, when you're out there being persecuted for and you're doing, you know you're doing the right thing, you're doing it for your Lord, you know, there's, there's a level of, you Joy. There is there is something, and I call it walking in the fire with Jesus. There is something about walking in the fire with Jesus that brings you into intimacy on yeah. a level you can never gain any other way. Yeah. Well, that's a good note to end on, and the bell has rung. Okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you for opening up the gates of heaven and letting out the light so that we could see the life you intended us to live. We can grasp it dimly. We want it fully. And we ask that you will and open our minds, open our hearts, open our senses, 
to appreciate you in all your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. In Jesus' name, amen. In Jesus' name, amen.